This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It this evening with Dan Salmon. Hello. And me, Vanessa Tohoka. Thanks for joining us. This evening, have you ever wondered if there's any technology behind the perfect coffee? We are going to be speaking to a champion barista and research and development expert to find out what's changed in our homes and in cafes. So if you want to know about the perfect brew, do stay tuned. Until we get to that, what's new in news this week? Well... We're going to lead with Elon Musk as usual. We are going to lead with Elon Musk because uh, how much does everyone love Elon Musk? Um... The the he's he's the only god that everyone that's okay to worship, um, <laughs> <laughs> at least according to some. He has announced or, or uh, put up on his various uh, f- social media channels that his house has his brand new shiny solar panel tiles that we've heard about over the past few months installed on top. They are pretty hot looking, I got to say. Yeah, they come in slate or terracotta. They come in slate or terracotta. We've heard, I mean, we've heard about obviously Elon Musk being the man who uh, founded PayPal and used that amazing billions and billions of dollars that he got to uh, try and save the planet, uh, including things like the ubiquitous Tesla uh, automobiles mm-hmm. and uh, the Tesla Powerwall, as well as um, offering the South Australian government uh, his technology to get uh, a solar storage, a solar storage happening. happening. Yeah. So, I mean, and the Hyperloop, you know, transportation hi- solutions. He's, he's got his finger in many pies. Um, and the most recent pie is uh, the good-looking solar tile. Uh, they look, for all intents and purposes, exactly like a roof tile that you would see on... Uh, most buildings, like older buildings, like those flat slate roofing, like, yeah, for those who like So none of designs. this reflective, glassy type of appearance. No, and, and they hooked uh, directly into a uh, Tesla Powerwall should you uh, have the technology installed. Um, it was uh, an interesting thing he mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of months ago now, he, he would like to see uh, a, a situation where someone has a Tesla car that is powered by a Tesla Powerwall that is charged by Tesla roof tiles. And sure, they want to own end to end the ecosystem. Uh, that su- makes a lot of sense. Surprising for nobody, but mm. look, it's 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 now possible. Um, I it, think one of the nice things about this solution is that the tiles are, are quite small in size compared mm. to a lot of the panel sizes that we see, and so you really make the most of whatever space you might have. Absolutely, and. Um, According to, I mean, look, it, it's it's a bit of a promo and we can't, I suppose we need to take everything with a grain of salt, but it, he does say that it's cheaper than traditional roof tiles. I think it's safe for us to be talking about this considering they're sold out until next year. Yeah. And um, we'll hear a lot of reviews in that time. We so, will. you know, the rubble will hit the road. Um, what's the price for the, that? The yeah. price for a solar tile, you, you've got me there. It is 21.85 US, I believe, dollars per square foot. So um, jump on to your... So that's a lot cheaper than solar panels at the moment. It's a lot cheaper than solar panels. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and like we said, comparable to solar tile or to roof tiles. Um, so... I guess the proof will be in a proof of the pudding will be in the eating, or whatever analogy you <laughs> want to use for that kind of uh, technology. But no, it's good. It's good to see that we're moving uh, ahead, and I suppose everyone just needs to um, worship Elon Musk a little bit harder now. Yeah, look, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, the tiles are, are made of tempered glass, so mm-hmm. even though they do, they look matte, that is actually how the light's getting through. So it's 
they are a lot stronger than slate or asphalt, which they kind of look a little bit like slate. True. Um, and and if you do have a, if you don't want to cover your entire roof in solid tiles, they do come with matching actual roof tiles that you can mix and match across your roof. Although if they're going to be cheap and get you as much solar power as you want and you like the look of them, I can't see why you wouldn't just put your entire roof with these things on them. Not that I'm endorsing you the, to the, buy anything in particular. The funniest feature um, that I can see is that the tiles are capable of defrosting using a similar method to um, your anti-ice <laughs> type of wires and windshields. Now, in our climate, you know, we don't get some of that extreme weather that maybe, you know, like snow no, that, that's places true. do. That's actually a good point. But, um, but maybe in the future we might. Well, possibly. But, I mean, it's practical for those parts of the world where it does snow. And, um, I mean, it depends on whether you would be willing to allow it's your house to have that as its only well, it's electricity such an interesting source. thought, isn't it, that you would melt the snow off your roof so that you can let the sunlight back through again to, to get more energy. It's, it's really, it's you know, a, they've really like thought catch, about it. It is, but it's, it almost sounds like a catch-22. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, it's big melted from both sides from the sun or from, yeah anyway I like it it's a little it's a little heat sandwich absolutely um, there was a, a little um, disturbing news this week as a memo was leaked out of Google mm. and it was uh, a bit of a screed from a current Google employee. Well, uh, yes. So a current Google employee. I don't think he, uh, this, I'm assuming man, has been named. Um, but essentially uh, the, the crux of it was that uh, he has claimed in his memo to all of, um, I don't know, was it across all of Google? I don't know. Um, that men are biologically more predisposed to working in the tech industry than women. Um, yeah. he, he has been named now, actually, he's because been he's been reportedly fired. Yes, he's been fired and has gone back to the subreddit that are full of slime where he crawled out of in the first place. Look, yeah, it's it's um, <sighs> it's an upsetting thing to read because, you know, he's, he's called this a manifesto and he's sort of said mm. that um, I don't like Google's diversity efforts. Um, I think it, it creates an echo chamber of political correctness mm -hmm. and I don't feel comfortable being right-wing in this environment. Right, and, okay. Uh, and I think that we're not, you know, rewarding people on merit. Now, I'd say that these are these are things that need to be discussed openly, absolutely, and, 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 and in a non echo chamber type of way. They, they, are, they, you know, there are elements of validity to some of the things that he was saying in terms of echo chamber and not and is, not feeling free to say this things. Is the problem, you want, like you've got a really mixed bag of things there. It's like some valid complaints, some things that people should talk about openly. You know, some really not based on anything scientific sort of things thrown in there. Yeah, by the way, women are stupid. It's just like, yeah. no, oh, I'm... I'm but, sick of having this argument. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's it's important to say, right, this is really going on and it needs to be dealt with. It's not enough to pretend it doesn't exist and that, you know, women are making things up when they encounter problems or that, you know, or that um, or that it's okay to leave these things unaddressed in a, in a modern workplace culture. Absolutely. And, and But I mean, the, 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 the political overtones of all the things that he was saying, he knew and he wanted to be fired. He will be a martyr for whatever ridiculous cause that he moves on to now moves on to next. I mean, like, it's it's just indicative of discourse yeah, around perhaps, the world at the moment yeah. or in the, in the developed world anyway. Yeah, it's... Look, it's it's upsetting to read these sort of things as a woman working in technology and just saying, well, you know, not everyone's going to agree, but it'd be nice to engage people in conversations and try and take them on that journey and, and you know, put facts mm. ahead of these sort of stories. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's bad news, but it's, it's important that, that Google's... Working I mean, to they did the it. they did the right thing. Yeah, and they, they, did do the they right are thing. far from alone in having these sort of issues go on in their companies. Mm -hmm. Sunlight's the best disinfectant. Let's get it out. Let's talk about it, um, and let's you know keep having conversations about you know 
the dif- the worth that individuals bring and try not to generalise across, you know, massive bunches of people. Yeah. He's hoping anyway. It's a little sad. Yeah. All right, what else in news? What's a bit... Well, this is also a bit of a downer, this one. For all of those who are watching Game of Thrones, there'll be no spoilers here. You're safe. Um, I, for one, have not caught up with this season at all. I, for one, have watched about two episodes in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I really enjoy it, but um, I haven't caught up this year. Mm. Anyhow, some hackers, not for the first time, have gone after HBO's content. In this particular case, um, they say that they have uh, 1.5 terabytes of HBO content. Mm -hmm. This includes um, copies of episodes. It includes scripts for the first four episodes as well as the script to the yet-to-air fifth episode at the time that this story went out. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also includes things like email addresses of, you know, some of the stars involved in the filming process. See, see, this is interesting because, um, I mean... Obviously, this kind of stuff happens a lot, but you don't hear too much about people leaking uh, content and, like for want of a better word, pirating content with malicious intent in the way that this is. Yeah, so what's unique about this one is that they haven't just put them out there and said, hey, everyone download these. They've put out a little teaser, um, a half gigabyte sample of their goods to sort of declare that they have goods. This mm. is a little bit like chopping off a finger and sending it in an envelope yeah, as a threat. Absolutely. You know, we have your stuff and we uh, want this much money. We want to extort this out of you. Mm. And are they, are they asking for anything in return or are they just They're asking feeding? for a lot of money. Yeah. So this is the first time they've done that. In the past, they've just sort of said, hey, we have your content, which is really awful. Mm. Um, rather misguidedly, they're describing themselves as white hat hackers. Like, oh, we're, uh, not, we're not political. We're doing this because we don't believe in how HBO deals with their content. Therefore, we are going to steal from them and try and extort money mm, out of them. Every, everyone believes that what they're doing, they're doing for the right reason. Pretty indefensible. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. Um, if what happens is that people start, you know, trying to be a bit more rigorous of security, then that will be a good thing. It would be a good thing. <laughs> if it means that somehow we end up with content cheaper in general, that would yeah. be a nice thing. But I feel like the extorting it out of uh, the content owners is only going to make them a little bit more uh, jealously protective of the content that they own. May not get us that far. But those are the biggest pieces of uh, tech news this week for mm. us. We've just been joined in studio by Craig Simon. He is the research and development lead at Veneziano Coffee. He is an award-winning championship barista and um, he's here to talk to us about all the technology and coffee. Welcome. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks so much for coming in. Um, so, coffee really fuels how we get everything done on this show. <laughs> um, yes. And we know everyone in Melbourne is, is pretty curious about coffee. Um, but when we were looking, well, when I was looking recently at um, getting a little home machine, I was just stunned by the amount of options out there and how everyone had a really strong opinion about, you know, consumer choices. And then some people took it really seriously and went, oh, no, it's just not worth doing. Just go to your local cafe. That's an easier solution. And we thought, we want to know more. Like, how how is, um, you know, the market changing? And are you using sensors in the market? And are there drones on coffee farms? And what's going on? So we thought maybe we'd start with, um, with a, a chat about your experience as a barista competing in competitions. Yep. Um, and, you know, what sort of technology is involved there in terms of, you know, do you have to meet certain criteria according to sensors and temperatures and that sort of thing? The, um, there's probably not a massive amount of technology in the sense of temperatures and sensors in mm. terms of measuring. Um, it's still considered 
the most uh, effective and accurate way to decide if coffee is good or not is by actually consuming it, um, which I think is a good thing because coffee, as you as you mentioned, does make the whole world go round. Yeah. Um, but we certainly use a lot of technology to try and make sure we're delivering consistent coffee. Um, it, it's it's certainly a relatively young art form in the sense that it it um, it's only a little bit over a hundred years old that espresso has been around for. Obviously, coffee's been around for a significantly longer time. Um, but in terms of barista competitions, we're serving espresso coffee. And we, we certainly use things like um, thermometers, we use scales. Uh, there's a lot of development on the machines for water temperature control while they're brewing. Um, grinder development in terms of particle distribution and how that's going to extract and brew and all that sort of stuff. So there's certainly a massive amount of science going into making the perfect cup of coffee and we utilise all of that um, to varying extents all the time, effectively. So. Wow. Mm, yeah, I, I noticed um, last time I was in a cafe, they were using, like, one of the most technologically advanced pairs of scales I'd ever seen and, like, bring, pulling out the, the grounds almost grain by grain to make sure it was the right weight. Is that precision something that technology has been able to really kind of focus in or is that something you guys have always been able to do? It's just that it's easier now with technology. Oh, I think a- absolutely it's impossible without technology. The... Um, you know, we're trying to... It's a science experiment. It's a solubility experiment. Um, and we talk about recipes for how we brew our espresso. And for our recipe, we'll have a, a dose weight, which is the weight of the dry ground coffee going in. And we'll have a beverage weight, which is the yield weight going out. And we'll talk in terms of ratios um, of those two, of how we're going to make that coffee taste its best. Certain coffees like to have um, less water go through them to taste great. Some like a lot more water. And, you know, in terms of we would be able to taste a difference of around about 0.5 of a gram of coffee going in and about one gram of coffee coming out. So, and we, and you would be able to discern the difference if I gave you variations of that much. Um, and I think it, it would be pretty safe to say that even for myself, I would really struggle to be able to consistently give um, an assessment visually on 0.5 of a gram mm. in and say a gram out. Um, and so, yeah, the, the use of the use of scales and things like that are absolutely mandatory to practice those sorts of skills and to be able to deliver that consistency at the, in the, in your cafe or at home or things like that. So, what about at the roasting end of things? Yep. Do do you look into that side as well? Yeah, I do. I do a lot of um, I do a lot of roasting, mm. and and we use all sorts of stuff. Obviously, that's where. Um, Temperature probes, thermocouples become a lot more important in the in the process because it's a it's a it's a sealed environment and it's very high temperatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we use um, diagnosis software, so we'll track the temperature curves of the roast. We'll track the the timing of it. We'll track air temperatures because the once again we're we're into the science of um, heat heat change and heat mm. heat transfer, and so all of the compounds in coffee change over time and temperature and to get this uh, consistent flavor out of those roasts you need to deliver the same temperature gradient over time so we'll use those we'll use those probes we'll use those um, software that track that for us to overlay uh, rate of rise to overlay temperature curves um, so that if we call we end up calling it our roast profile and so yeah. we'll try and copy those as, as closely as possible so can you adjust those profiles in the mix can you read things and say this is how you know 
we're reading what's going on within the roaster and can you adjust things or is it sort of a set it and then find out what the outcome is and test? It's, it's, it's all of that. Right. Um, so you can certainly roast completely manually mm-hmm. and, um, and the really highly skilled roasters will be intuitively able to decide if it's going off track where, where they can fix that. There's um, coffee when you're roasting it has two uh, energy phases. It's got um, endothermic and exothermic. Mm-hmm. Um, endothermic is where it's absorbing energy and exothermic is where it's expelling energy. And it does that twice in two cycles. So managing the, the temperature in, making sure that you're um, giving it enough energy when it needs it, but then not giving it too much when it changes over from absorbing energy to giving off energy. Um, and those things you can certainly see on those graphs because you'll see that rate, energy rate of rise. You'll see the, that slowing down, knowing that you're going to have to um, throw some energy in there. And then the, the really tricky challenge of particularly roasting is that it's around about a two-minute delay from action to seeing the reaction. Mm. So you need mm. to be able to preempt what it's going to do and know, and know how it's going to um, change in front of you. So it's certainly I would say that's a technology that has absolutely massively changed how um, easy it is to share roasting and how to, how to be a lot more consistent. Would, would you be able to like think you know, back on, you know, you've been working in the industry for how long now? Uh, close to 13 years now. Okay. In the last 13 years, do you think there was one moment or one piece of technology or change where you were just like, this is a game changer, this is going to make everything different? Or has it just been like a gradual kind of incremental process from 13 years ago to now? Uh, it's hard to say that there's one. Um I'm gonna. I'll pick one though. I reckon the real big change was when we um, we developed grind on demand grinders. So, up until about 2008, all the grinders were like the ones that you see in in older style stores where they pull a lever and we call them clicky clackers. It's got a dosing chamber on the front. Um, The coffee is pre-ground to um, a fair, fair amount to give you consistency and you pull the lever and it drops a volumetric weight of coffee into your handle. And it was a really good way of, of consistently keeping the dose roughly right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means you have to have stale coffee. Coffee is, as soon as you grind it, all of the volatiles start to escape because you've broken apart those cell walls. And then also it is exposed to a lot more oxygen because of the surface area is a lot greater. So um, the, uh, the best tasting coffee is immediately ground coffee, but we didn't have a solution. Um, and it was born out of the barista competitors that were trying to come up with a, an advantage. And they worked out how to stick a little funnel on the front of a grinder. And then we had um, you know timers that we could set 0.1 of a second um, time variation so that we could really accurately try and get as close to exactly the right um, amount of coffee as possible with no wastage and fresh. Um, and, and I would say that because that was a skill that pretty much was the domain of the competition barista and there's not that many of us relative to the workforce. Mm. Um, but when we, when we invented those grind-on-demand grinders, it really changed the opportunity for the whole barista workforce to to deliver fresh coffee, which I think probably would would have contributed significantly. I, I reckon that was probably a really, really massive moment for specialty coffee becoming easy and accessible for everyone. So beans can come from lots of different places around the world. Yep. Um, when you're talking about the process of like endothermic, exothermic sort of um, 
heat change yep. within the within the roasting yep. and that happening twice. Um, do all beans sort of react the same way to those stages of the process? So is it, for example, do you have conventional wisdom around, you know, if I slow down this stage of the process, this will happen to my roast? Uh, yes, yes and no. Um, the they all behave a little differently mm. purely because of the density of coffee. So coffee grows differently in terms of the maturation of the cherries, um, depending on its elevation, on the weather conditions, on the temperature range that mm-hmm. the um, that those farms see. Mm-hmm. So certainly if you get, say, Brazilian coffee, which grows around 700 metres to 900 metres above sea level, it's a lot lower density than if you, say, got a Kenyan coffee that grows at 2,000 metres above sea level. Um, and so those two densities take energy differently. They're, it's a lot easier to, to get energy from the outside inside in the Brazilian um, light density coffees and a lot harder in the Kenyan um, coffees, obviously. So you certainly have to manage the energy differently. But in terms of those events where it goes exothermic um, twice, which we call um, first and second crack, mm-hmm. it is. it actually sounds like popcorn at first crack and then it sounds sort of a little bit like crinkly cellophane at second crack. Um, so those two events happen at pretty constant temperature ranges on your um, o- o- on your specific roaster. They'll be a little bit different roaster to roaster. Um, but so you can predict that temperature. So you can use that rate of rise uh, gradient to help you get to those two events at very specific times that are going to control your, your roast curve. Cool. So coffee bean suppliers, are they generally working with cafes and saying, here is my coffee profile and this is the temperature that you should be doing it at and this is how long the extraction should be? Or is that something that cafes sort of and baristas work out for themselves? It's a bit of both. Um, we certainly give um, suggested recipes. We think that that helps a lot of people very quickly dial in on, on roughly right to make it really tasty. Um, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time trying to work out how to make it taste good ourselves. So we're always happy to share that information. Um, and I think it's probably, that is a pretty contemporary way of doing coffee now. I think that that there's certainly um, an open desire to have everyone make the best coffee possible. So I know a lot of our contemporary um, roasting competitors do the same thing to, to help um, I- improve the quality of their coffee being served. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned before competition baristas. Is the competition process, uh, I suppose, affected by technology now? Like, are, the, are judges like using bits and pieces to kind of adju- assess things in a different way, or is it still about smell and taste and that kind of thing? From the judges' perspective, it's still smell and taste, but certainly the baristas uh, have have implemented as much technology as possible and push the push the limits. You know, we started out with no scales, no um, no controls other than just our grinder, the espresso machine, and a stopwatch. Um, and now, through the course of um, of competition, people have started using scales on the on the drip tray so that they can measure accurately the amount of coffee coming out into their cups. Um, and that led to needing for them to be accurate, being able to deal with vibrations of the motor turning on on the um, on the machine, being able to be waterproof was very critical. Lots of scales died early on, um, and then obviously sizing them so that they they fit under the machine, you could still get your cups under the, the spouts and, uh, and, and make it all work together. Um, and then interestingly, that has uh, led to innovation for the general cafe because now there's a couple of machines on the markets where the, they've actually built scales into the machine and the scales now turn 
the the brewing on and off. Oh, sorry, not on and off. You turn it on, but the scales will turn the brewing off at a set weight as opposed to a set time or a set um, water volumetric flow through through the actual group. So it's it's um it's certainly the competitions are innovating ideas that are becoming the the marketplace um, standard practice machines now, which is fantastic. Awesome. Mm. So we can't ignore the massive rise in uh, machines that take little coffee pods and sort of push them through, and that's been massive in the the home consumer market. Um, Have you, you know, we've had instant home coffee machines for a long time. Yes. What do you think about the the changing quality that people are able to achieve through machines at home? Uh, Like, I think it's fantastic. I was was involved in, um, in developing a pod product for one of our... Um, one of our uh, supermarkets that we won't name, but it, <laughs> it's one of the one of the um, alternate ones. And they uh, and they and to do that, I went over to Germany for their factory, mm. and it was literally like um, Willy Wonka's <laughs> factory of making pods. They oh, made. I'd so prefer a coffee mm. uh, Willy Wonka factory than a chocolate one. Well, I, I think I'd take any any sort of Willy Wonka factories because <laughs> I find them fascinating. But the scale of it was amazing, and the amount of process that was involved to try and maintain quality and, and do it in the scale that they needed to, to keep up with demand was was amazing to watch. Um, and, and I think the beauty of all of these things is that it's, it's, um, it's opening up the general consumer to higher quality coffees. You know, I think it's probably no surprise for anyone that the, the lowest grade coffees end up in instant coffee. So it's not a fantastic product from a quality perspective. Um, but the quality of the coffee ending up in a lot of these pods is actually significantly higher. So um, it's both exposing the the, the um, general consumer to a higher quality product, but it's also exposing people that would otherwise have instant coffee to an, an espresso product, which means that they may start to look at going out into cafes and uh, and and enjoying mm. a really high quality product that's made by you know baristas that have have spent many, many years honing their craft. So I think it only helps to improve um, everyone's coffee experience, which means we can the, we can hopefully at the end of the day end up with being able to pay the farmers really um, good money for a really good effort of making a great coffee because that is probably the biggest challenge mm. that we face, that the, the price of coffee hasn't changed very much as a consumer, but the, the cost of manufacturing it and, and, and farming it is is quite great to make a high high quality coffee. And so, so there's a bit of I- inequity in that chain to be able to, to keep delivering that to the consumer. So what do you know about the farm side of the process? Is there technology involved in the picking and, you know, do they use any drones to keep, you know, keep an eye on crops or is is everything still quite old school? I mean, obviously a lot of coffee's grown in um, countries where, you know, the economies really rely on it and there's, yep. a, there's cheaper labour. Uh, yeah, look, most, most coffee, in, I would assume almost all coffee is in primarily developing countries so cost of labor is is quite low um development is is relatively low but there's certainly efforts to to improve quality um the 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 process of of getting coffee off the tree and then um um, processed on on the at the wet mill and then dried and then sorted and and to us uh, as roasters so that we can roast it and serve it to the customer is is very involved and very intricate you know you have to try and um, pick the cherries at the optimum ripeness so things um, like measuring the bricks the sugar content is is certainly used by farmers as an indicator um, but they do they do use some very um, very crude 
non-technological things to help. You know, in uh, I was in Colombia not that long ago, and they had um, they had their thumb painted the, the, with nail polish the color of the cherries that they should oh, be picking. Oh wow! Which wow. is really, it's a really simple, obvious idea, right? That's great. Which I thought was really cool. And then in uh, in Burundi, they made one a project made um, those rubber wristbands that yeah. are the same color, so that they could help the the pickers pick the right. Um, ripeness of cherries. So that's some some not particularly technological but really valuable stuff to do. Innovation. Yeah. But then it gets a little bit more um, involved when you start to come down from the the slopes of the of the farm and you have to process it at the wet mill, you know, things um, mechanical primarily to help separate uh, stones. They um, they have these floating tanks to get rid of anything that's not um, the right density of cherry. Um, and then they will start to get more serious once it's dried. Things like um, colour sorters they use. So the in a lot of the dry mills, they're now starting to invest in, um, in colour sorters that let the green coffee fall down, uh, fall down with gravity and then it'll use the colour, um, uh, whatever they're using, the sensors to pick up the right colours and they'll use a tiny puff of air to spit out any seeds that are, they've decided are defective. Amazing. Which is, re- and, it, and it's, it's literally flowing so fast that you can't actually see Amazing. the individual seeds by eye and you can't see it spit them out. So that's a really cool innovation that they're using to replace um, massive numbers of people having to sit there and, and hand sort out these defects. Um, and then... Uh, obviously, from that point forwards, it starts to. Oh, they have. Um, they it's, it is once again still pretty mechanical. They use gravity tables, so tables on an angle that shake side to side. Mm. Oliver tables, and that separates the density of seeds. So the higher quality seeds are always denser, and and all of these things that have been worked out to help us get a higher quality um, coffee has has certainly been thought about and invested in as much as possible. Yeah, amazing. What would you like to see in the future? In the near future, even like, you know, this, it's come so far in the time that you've been working. Like, yep. is there some uh, solution to a problem that you really would love to see in your craft or in your industry? Yeah, there is one solution. I'm sure it's not that far away. They've not the biggest challenge that they've had with um, with Im- implementing technology with coffee is is the noise. And and the thing for me, the the way scales, I think, are really brilliant because they're way more accurate at measuring um, the way coffee's brewing than measuring with the, the water flow meters, which is how they used to previously do it. It, it was a, a flow meter is a um, like a six-legged star that sits in the water with one magnet on it. It flicks around and it counts how many times it flicks past the magnet um, to, to let it know roughly how much water has gone through. But if your if your um, dose of coffee in the handle is not evenly distributed, if there's uh, weak spots or if there's any channeling, more water will get through that point and you end up with less of the coffee oils and things like that. So you can actually end up with the same volume of coffee in the cup, um, but you will have a significantly higher water content or lower water content depending on how well that water has been resisted by the, the coffee grinds. So actually weighing gives you a much more accurate picture of how you've brewed your coffee. But like I said, the, the noise involved when you're turning on um, pumps for, for the water, the water pumps for when you're brewing your coffee was so bad that they, um, 
they nearly one of the companies started and they got five of the winners of the world barista championships over various years to try and help them design this way scale espresso machine and they released it uh at a at a coffee expo one of the world's biggest coffee expos about two years too early they couldn't actually sell it they're like this is fantastic technology and they thought they were really close they, it was so challenging for them that they nearly they nearly binned the whole idea because they couldn't work out the noise of pressing go and then having it tear when you put the cups on it so that it zeroed the scales before the coffee came out and all these things they're really struggling they finally got that sorted out um and it's brilliant but they haven't done the same with the grinder yet so everyone wants to do that with the grinder and have um grind to weight rather than grind to time which is what it currently is and you estimate the weight by picking the time and you get as close as you can. Um, and so what I would like to see is, A, they finish that project and work it out, and then, B, I would love that grinder to, to speak to the machine so that when you press the button, it already knows how much weight is in the handle without having to pre-weigh and all that sort of stuff. We're sort of, we're about 90% of the way there. Mm. I'm sure there's just a few little details that they need in fixing, but I think that will make a massive difference for workflow in cafe for sure. Oh, that yeah. sounds amazing. And if anyone out there can build an app that could do that, <laughs> get in touch. Just a machine. Just a machine. Yeah. Uh, one of our volunteers at the station, Glenn, has asked if um, there are machines with personal assistance built into them. Oh, it sounds nice. Yeah. I've, I've, I've not got one yet. And sounds like you're almost talking about it with the, the grinder talking to the coffee machine. We want the coffee machine talking to the hapless you know, coffee consumer straight after they wake up in the morning and they don't really know what's good for them. That might be nice. <laughs> it would be, be, nice. be nice. It'll oh, be. Look, I think anything that lets you actually engage with the customer is fantastic. You know, I think that's actually the joy of coffee. Is, yeah. is, um, I mean, the joy of making it is all the technology stuff. Yeah. But I think the real joy of coffee is that it's such a, a social lubricant yeah. and such a, yeah. a, a, a meeting point for everyone to get together. So. so last thing before we let you go, yep. do you have any, any tips for some aspiring baristas out there if they, they're interested in the competition track? Oh, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, even if even if it's just for home brewing, I think the best thing that you can do is get yourself a uh, a, a good timer and a and a really good. Um, don't have to be terribly expensive, but a fairly accurate needs to be about 0.1 of a gram accuracy set of scales. Um, and if you if you set up your uh, your recipes so that you're weighing your dose in, and then you're weighing your brewed coffee yield out, you'll you'll really quickly be able to dial in on making some great coffees. So I think that's probably is probably the best thing to do for anyone that's that's thinking about trying to improve their coffee skills is get a couple of these fairly basic um, devices that we've had for a long period of time and use them to help you make a great coffee. Craig Simon, uh, thank you so much. It's fascinating to hear that the process behind coffee sounds almost as addictive as the process of uh, enjoying coffee. I could keep talking about this for days. <laughs> Uh, you're the research and development lead at Veneziano Coffee and uh, we're going to see you on the competition track again in the Barista Championship. So all the best with that. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for your time tonight. Um, I'm sitting here with Leo Veru. She's a computer scientist and web standards geek and all-around kick-ass lady on the web. Um, Leah, thank you very much for chatting to me and to bite into it. Thanks for having me. Do you want to tell me a bit more about yourself and your background? Like, you've done so many things, I don't even want to try and cover off your CV, but like, what are some of the highlights? I started with web development in 2005 um, through a forum we had actually with a friend of mine that got me into web development. And until then, I was only doing um, 
visual basic apps as a hobby that no, nobody ever used. So I was really amazed at how I could code something and put it up on the web and people were using it immediately. Mm -hmm. um, that excited me to no end. I never, I, I don't think I wrote another line of visual basic code since. <laughs> Um, we started a company eventually around that forum. Uh, as I was working, I started discovering things like tricks about the web technologies I was using. I started publishing them. They turned into open source projects. Eventually, I joined the CSS working group to try to improve the CSS language. Um, which is super cool because we need a lot of people working on those specs and particularly people who are using the languages day in, day out. Um, and as I understand it, there's um, often not very many people making those decisions. Like it's sort of a, a small group of people who are volunteering their time. So thank you from everybody in the web community for um, engaging in that process. Thank you. Although um, standards are not the way that most people imagine them. Mm. Uh, it's not that we like sit there and come up with big features like Flexbox. Those happen after like over many years. Um, mm. It's more uh, the day-to-day -day work of working groups in general, not just the CSS one, is more like small things like how do we name this? Should it have commas? How does, it, does this edge case interact with this other edge case? Mm. Um, there is this thread uh, that I like to point to in the CSS working group GitHub repo, which is basically, um, it's the second most commented thread in the repo, and it's about should we have commas in the color function or not? And like everybody oh, has wow. an opinion. That's incredible. But this is the thing, like, I think when you, when you um, live with a language and a spec day in, day out, you realize that syntax choices like that affect people in a really big way. So something like a comma may seem small as a one-off, but like when you multiply that by hundreds of thousands of uses, it suddenly becomes a really big deal. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. They are part of CSS's UI. Mm. So tell me, Leo, what are you up to at the moment? So three years ago, I joined MIT to try my luck at academic research. Um, I thought maybe I can improve the web in a more substantial way there. I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. I'm still looking for the answer in that question. Mm -hmm. I recently released what I've been working on at MIT for the last two years. It's called Mavo. It extends the syntax of HTML to describe web apps that store, manage, and edit and transform data. Because we noticed that even though a lot of people can easily learn the basics of HTML and CSS, and they can put together static websites. Once they need to go a little bit further, store some data, edit some data, maybe upload an image uh, through the website, uh, or maybe show the result of a calculation. Like, they seem like simple things, but they're actually suddenly bombarded with a ton of software engineering concepts. They, they basically have to become programmers to go one step further. And we think it should be easier, not just to make it easier for newcomers to create web apps, but also when you make something easier for novices, it becomes easier for everybody. And when you say that, do you mean it's easier for everyone because there's less support and work to help people like understand how to do these basic things? Or, or is it about just lowering this sort of barrier to entry in general? Or is it both? What we're trying to do is to lower the barrier to entry in general. We're not so much interested in making in making it a, a stepping stone to web development, something mm -hmm. that people will learn and then they have to move on to serious languages. Ideally, we want to make web development itself easier. Um, we envision a future where 
people would only have to become programmers and learn JavaScript and other uh, programming languages if they need to make something very custom or very performant or mm. not for everyday applications that just manage data. Like we keep coding the same interactions over and over mm. and we think this should be easier. Absolutely. Well, certainly, um, I saw a great article go around um, Twitter and the web a couple months ago that was talking about the state of JavaScript engineering today. Did you see that one? Oh, yes. I had a <laughs> screenshot from that in, in my slides. <laughs> it was so funny. And certainly, it does feel like the, the layers of complexity and tooling and the ways that we deploy and the production pipeline, it just it is so complex. And it is so hard for people who are new to these ideas and these concepts to even know where they should start. Um, but also, people are familiar with like concepts like repeating an action or capturing a basic node and then like making an array. Like even if they don't have the vocabulary for those things, I think a lot of people do what we might call pseudo programming or even basic programming in Excel, for instance. Yes, exactly. And um, we do often look at spreadsheets as inspiration. Um, but just as inspiration, we're not trying to emulate spreadsheets, but it's often interesting to look there because it's basically the most successful and user programming system that exists, mm. as much as many people hate <laughs> it. I mean, I barely use spreadsheets, <laughs> but it's still interesting to look there. Absolutely. Look, I work in a finance fintech and both of the finance guys in my team are really wedded to their spreadsheets and it's really amazing to see what they can do with them. Exactly, exactly. You see people that don't consider themselves programmers, they cannot write a line of code in a traditional programming language, but they can make these very elaborate spreadsheets with like really complicated logic. Mm. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. what could these people make if, the, if we empower them to create more? So tell me, if, if someone was interested in trying out Mavo, what would they do? They can go to mavo.io, look at the demos, read the documentation. The documentation even has uh, live examples and we want to add more. Mm -hmm. uh, so that should help them get started. And if they have questions, there's a Gitter chat that mm -hmm. I monitor and respond to very quickly in most cases. Awesome. There's also a GitHub repo that they can use to report any bugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's still a young project. They might find bugs, especially mm. more in the more experimental parts of Mavo. Not every feature in Mavo has existed for the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. And what are some examples of things that people might be able to build with Mavo? Um, for example, an editable homepage uh, that someone could edit and upload images right from the page, or a portfolio website that lists um, all your web design work, or all your paintings, or all your photos. You mentioned before someone needed to create an app to do the food management for their horse. I think that's a really interesting. Yes, idea. I love this example. Yeah. It shows how when you when you enable when you empower people to create apps, they you realize they've had all these custom needs that they didn't even think they could turn into an app before. Mm. Uh, for example, we had this woman that took part in our user study, and she went after the study to create and created her own app for managing horse feedings. And I didn't even know that horse feedings were such a complicated task. Mm -hmm. Apparently, she has her horse in a stable and they don't, they, they don't have, they can't, they don't have any app uh, over there. They just have this huge table that they, it's, it's basically a whiteboard with uh, rows and columns and they erase things and write again and it looks like a mess. And she made this app for them to manage like the horse feedings and mm. horse blankets and, and all that stuff. 
it's incredible how people will like make do with the tools they have and they don't even necessarily realize that they're doing a task which can be automated or is repeatable but I, I think that's quite an exciting concept um, to make it possible for people to look at the work they do and think about how they could optimize or how they can capture like the repetitive tasks and um, automate them away a little bit. Yeah, and it's really, um, it poses a lot of challenges for us as well, uh, just because it's hard to design the right primitives when you're a programmer and you're trying to, to design a language that's usable for non-programmers. It's very, very easy to make mistakes and design features that require, uh, require an understanding of programming to use. Which, which is why it's very important to do user studies for these kinds of things. Mm. And many people think that user studies need a lot of money and a lot of resources, but actually it can be very, you, you can easily do a user study on a budget. It doesn't, you don't have to be at a research institution. You don't have to be at a big company. Um, all it takes is you can recruit a few people. Uh, we recruited 20 for Mavo, but um, it could be as low as five. Like after five people, you see the same patterns again and again. Mm. Uh, and even one or two still give you a lot of insight that you wouldn't have gotten any other way. Um, and you can pay them a little bit. Sometimes not even that. Sometimes they might just want to help, mm. if, especially if it's an open source project. Um, and have a few tasks and observe how they use the, the, the product or the library or the language and uh, video them, study it afterwards, see what they stumbled on, what they had difficulty with, don't blame the user. Mm -hmm. uh, programmers, we have a, a tendency to blame the user and thinking, oh, how could they not figure this out? Uh, how, how can they be so, so, so silly? Like, why would, they, why would they not understand this? But that is a mistake. If something is hard to use, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not their fault. It's your fault. You designed, it, uh, you designed something that's not usable. Mm -hmm. And that can be hard at first. It's an it's an exercise in humility. Mm -hmm. I know I, I do user research as well, and you have to you have to really be willing to um, put your ego aside and accept that the product is the thing at fault, and not your thinking and not your design. Um, and yeah, it is. It's quite it's quite um, confrontational, especially when you put a lot of thinking and hard work and sort of blood, sweat and tears into something and then you see it like not succeed and it's quite, it can be quite disheartening. So you have to just say, well, you yes. know, it's solvable. We'll just have to think, you know, what's a better label for that? Or do we put that in a more obvious spot or like what was the, and, and think hard about like what actually caused that user experience problem and, and try to fix it. Um, but to, to wrap up, so um, this is like an amazing idea and I'm really excited to see where it goes. Um, so what, what do you hope for Mavo's future? Like do we, do we see this as being like um, growing in user base and, and see lots of amazing open source apps? And, and is there, do you have any other aspirations for what happens with Mavo? So getting more users would definitely be great. Uh, but Mavo is a bit of a playground for us to um, sketch out what the future of HTML should look like. So our ultimate vision for the future, the far future, uh, not anytime soon, but our vision would be for features like Mavo's to make it into the HTML language at some point. Like we envision a future where data interactions would be as essential to HTML as paragraphs and colors. That is really quite an amazing vision and I would certainly love to work with a markup language that could be that powerful. Thank you again, Leah, for chatting to me and I'm really curious to see how Mavo goes. So good luck with it and we hope to hear more from you soon. Thank you very much. 
You're on Triple R, Bite Into It with Dan and Vanessa. And a big thank you to our teammate, Laura Summers, for recording that very informative interview with Leah Veru, who was out for Web Directions Code. If you want to find out more about that, um, they were talking about Marvo, so M-A-V-O.io, and you can find out more there or find Leah Veru on Twitter. Um, In events this week, just very quickly, we're in the middle of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Love a bit of myth. And uh, after the success of their VR program for the first time last year, they've brought it back this year. Um, One of the featured docos is Inside Manus, which is um, a really worthwhile story and Mm. um, a creative take on a tough issue. Uh, Do check it out. Um, Thanks for tuning in this evening and being with us on this chilly night. Thanks to my fellow hosts, Dan and Laura, and to our wonderful guests, Craig Simon, Brewster Champion, and Leah Veru. Do stay tuned for the International Pop Underground up next with Anthony Guru. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.